Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, as a remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No, sir. All right, let's start off with uh, some obituaries. Uh, three, we got three three ones from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 9, 2023. This first one is Samuel Mervyn Wise, May 4, 1926 to April 3, 2023. Author unknown. Beloved husband, father, grandfather, and friend, born in Nashville, Tennessee, Sam proudly served aboard the USS Hughes during World War II. He moved to California after graduating from Vanderbilt University. Sam's career in aerospace spanned more than 40 years. His generosity accompanied his love of learning, uh, surpassed by only his fondness for food. Sam could fix anything and was an avid ham radio operator. Retirement left more time for friends, family, and a second career as a substitute teacher for more than 25 years. Married to his cherished Marilyn for 68 years, he, they enjoyed travel, discussion groups, and politics. Loving father to Cindy, Mark Miller, Joel, Felipe, uh, Philippa, uh, Bill, Joan, and Brett, Deborah, and grandfather to Robin, Aaron, Nathan, and Sarah. Sam was predeceased by his sister, Miriam Mamlin, and in lieu of flowers, donated donations to plant, Planned Parenthood. That was Samuel Mervyn Wise, May 4th, 1926 to April 3rd, 2023, author unknown. This next one is Laurette Martha Robbins, December 21st, 1938 to April 7th, 2023, author unknown. Laurette passed peacefully on April 7th. She was born to A. Leonard Rosalind Robbins in Philadelphia and raised in Santa Ana, California, alongside younger sisters Rosamond and Llewellyn. She attended UC Berkeley and UCLA and remained close with her Cal D. P. P. F. I. D. By E. Sorority Sisters. She raised sons John and Robert Benham in Tustin and Tarzana, California. She's a proud single working mom who successfully sold apparel to national department stores in a traditionally male-dominated industry. She ultimately settled in West LA. Lorette was a loving daughter, sister, mother, mother-in-law, grandmother, aka booby, aunt, and aunt, and a cherished friend. She loved to meet new people and her energy was infectious. Well, that was Laurette Martha Robbins, author unknown. And we finally have this one, K. Leo Buxbaum, M.D., December 17, 1931 to March 12, 2023, author unknown. Born in Grisheim, Hessen, Germany, December 17, 1931, Leo Buxbaum died in Whittier, California after a brief illness on May 12th at the age of 91. His father, the late Henry Heinrich Buxbaum, M.D., was the last Jewish physician in Germany treating non-Jewish patients after this was prohibited by the Nazi regime in 1936. He emigrated to the United States in April of 1938. His mother, Hermine uh, Tome, and their three children, Manfred, Richard, Klaus, Leonard, and Ruth Marianne, were able to emigrate a, a month after the so-called Night of Broken Glass, or Kristallnacht, in German, uh, the pogrom that was staged on November 9th through the 10th. Leo and his family arrived in New York City on December 17, 1938, his seventh birthday. 
After four years in Bombay, New York, a village of 180 people where his father served the St. Regis Mohawk, now, now Aquisani Reservation, 6,000 people, one doctor. Leo and his family moved to the uh, Canadigua in the Finger Lakes. Leo attended and graduated from the Canandaigua Academy in 1949, where he was a state butterfly swim champion. Leo won a Regent scholarship to Cornell University, where he majored in chemistry. Short of graduation from Cornell, Leo matriculated at the University of Rochester Medical School, from which he graduated in 1956. Leo met many lifelong friends at Rochester. After residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in uh, hematology at UCLA School of Medicine, he began his medical practice in Van Nuys. He also at this time worked at Los Angeles County Hospital as attending physician, physician supervising the training of residents there. Leo first specialized in hematology, but when fiber optic gastroscopy was introduced into the United States by Dr. Hiromi Shinya, he became one of the pioneers of this field, adding significant refinements to his equipment and use. He purchased his own equipment and installed it at Whittier Presbyterian Hospital, where he founded and for 25 years was the chief of the Department of Gastroenterology and then of Medicine. Meticulous about the role of record-keeping for diagnostic purposes, he filmed each of the several thousand procedures he performed. They still are used as a teaching tool. On Leo's retirement from practice after 40 years, he taught in the introductory program for medical students at USC's Keck School of Medicine for another 10 years. During these years, his passion for teaching medical students went well beyond the program's formal requirements. Scores of PowerPoint presentations ranged from uh, modern microbiology to the history of infectious diseases, all focused on both the subject and to a great degree on the personalities embodying those subjects. They were much appreciated not only by his students, but by colleagues of all levels of specialization. Leah was one of the very few Cornell undergraduates whose courses included three years of classical Greek and of modern literature. His fascination with the works of William Faulkner led to a constant hunt for his first editions and more than one trip to Yokonapatawapa County with his family. Leo's passions included photography, mathematical puzzles, including the Rubik's Cube, and World War II history. It was the center of an interlocking set of lifelong friendships, ranging from professional circles to randomly educated eternal students first met on his own youthful itineraries around the globe. Some on ocean fishing tours, some as fellow train and later fellow airplane seatmates. Leo was survived by his wife of 51 years, Frances Dixie Buxbaum, son, sons Charles, Natasha, and James Katrina, grandchildren Lily, Katia, Julia, Ruby, and Molly, brother Richard M. Buxbaum, and sister Ruth Kaddish, six nieces and nephews, and 12 grandnieces and nephews. That was K. Leo Buxbaum, M.D., December 17, 1931 to March 12, 2023, author unknown, and these are all from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 9, 2023. Right, here is another obituary from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, April 13, 2023. Michael Lerner, 
earned Oscar nod for a film mogul role in Barton Fink by Christy Carras. Michael Lerner, the prolific character actor known for his work in Barton Fink, Godzilla, Elf, and the X-Men movie franchise, has died. He was 91. The Oscar-nominated performer died Saturday evening, his nephew and fellow actor Sam Lerner confirmed Sunday afternoon on Instagram. Sam Lerner, who currently stars in the ABC sitcom The Goldbergs, shared multiple throwback photos of Michael Lerner and hailed his uncle as a legend. It's hard to put into words how brilliantly my uncle Michael was and how influential he was to me, Sam Lerner wrote. His stories always inspired me and made me fall in love with acting. He was the coolest, most confident, talented guy, and the fact that he was my blood will always make me feel special. Everyone that knows him knows how insane he was in the best way. I'm so lucky I got to spend so much time with him, and we're all lucky we can continue to watch his work for the rest of time. R.I.P. Michael, enjoy your unlimited humid cigars, comfy chairs, and endless movie marathon. In 1992, Michael Lerner received an Oscar nod for his acclaimed portrayal of a fictional Hollywood studio head Jack Lipnick in the Coen Brothers' Barton Fink. Throughout his career, Lerner amassed more than 150 credits spanning film and TV. Shortly before securing his Academy Award nomination, Lerner told the Los Angeles Times he based his Barton Fink performance on Louis B. Mayer, the legendary producer and co-founder of MGM Studios. I even found a pair of glasses in a junk shop that were identical to the ones he wore, Lerner uh, recalled at the time. As soon as I put them on, I felt like Mayer. By the time he booked uh, the role of Jack Lipnick, Lerner was no stranger to portraying Hollywood moguls. He also portrayed Columbia Pictures co-founder Harry Cohn in 1983's Rita Hayworth, The Love Goddess, and Warner Brothers President Jack Warner in 1980's Moviola, the year's blonde, This Year's Blonde. I love playing real-life people, he told the Times in 1991. It gives me a chance to become that person for a while. Lerner was also active on the California theater scene. After studying drama at UC Berkeley, he became a member of the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. He later appeared in several Los Angeles productions before making his big-screen debut in 1970's Alex in Wonderland. That was Michael Lerner, earned Oscar nod for film mogul role in Barton Fink by Chrissy Karras from the obituary, notice, obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, April 13, 2023. All right, we have one more obituary here from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, April 15, 2023. Shal G. Masri, author unknown. Shal G. Masri, a pioneer in rental and in re- uh, rental medicine and professor emeritus of medicine in physiology and biophysics at the Keck School of Medicine, University of Southern California, died on April 11, 2023 in Beverly Hills, surrounded by his family. He was 92. Shah was born in Iraq in 1930 to Georgie and Aliza. Having lost his father at the age of four, he and his two siblings, Simcha and David, were raised by their mother, a formidable woman whose tenacity and resilience were passed down to her son. After the creation of the State of Israel, life became more difficult for Iraqi Jews and Shah fled from Iraq to Israel in 1950 where Jews could attain citizenship and start a new life. His entire family followed in 1951. Shah completed his medical education at Hadassah Medical School in Jerusalem 
followed by his internship in Bielensen Medical Center. Thereafter, in lieu of military service, he contracted to provide medical care for six years in uh, un underserved areas, initially in Sodom by the Dead Sea and later in the Negev Desert. He later cared for patients while simultaneously doing research on the effects of heat on human physiology. It was this early work that would launch his career as one of the world's preeminent nephrologists, and it was in the Negev where he met his future wife, Mira. After they married, and with their two children, Ephrod and Guy, in tow, Shal and Mira headed to America, where Shal was invited for a two-year research fellowship. In his first year, he learned the art of clinical nephrology under Dr. George Schreiner at Georgetown University. In his second year, he traveled across the country to work with Dr. Charles Kleeman at UCLA. Under this mentorship, Shal truly learned how to be an investigator. He went on to receive the investigatorship of the American Heart Association, a prestigious honor that would keep him and his family in Los Angeles for an additional five years and ultimately a lifetime, during which he and Mira would have two more children, Yale and Dina, and several seven grandchildren. Shaw had a storied career where he taught, mentored, and carried out research for over 60 years. He started his career in Los Angeles at UCLA, then took a position at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center before serving as the Chief of Nephrology at the University of Southern California from 1974 to 2000. Over the entirety of his career, he received honorary doctorates uh, from uh, 14 universities across Europe, uh, was an honorary member of many international professional societies, and was the recipient of numerous awards from universities and societies throughout the world truly too many to mention. He wrote and lectured prolifically to document his research and expand scientific knowledge. Indeed, his contribution to the understanding of medicine and renal disease were as groundbreaking as they were prodigious. Additionally, he was a passionate advocate for organ transplantation as an alternative to dialysis. He reached out to Jewish, Islamic, and Catholic religious leaders, including the Pope, and successfully obtained their support. Beyond his own personal achievements, he trained and mentored hundreds of young physicians and scientists over his long career. Thus, his impact on the field of medicine has and will continue to grow beyond his lifetime. Perhaps the professional achievement that was most dear to him was the Mira and Shalji Masri Foundation, which he established in 1996 a nonprofit organization that promotes education and research in nephrology, physiology, and related fields. The foundation established the Mastery Prize, which includes both an honorarium and lectureship and recognizes outstanding contributions to the biomedical sciences and the advancements of health. He was so proud that 22 of its recipients went on to receive the Nobel Prize. Shaw believed he was extraordinarily fortunate that he found such joy in his life's work. He would often refer to it as a hobby, almost uh, laughing that he was paid to do what he would have gladly done for free. His mother taught him that if you worked hard, uh, you would go places, but he was aware that he could not have done it alone. He had the support of an extraordinary woman who raised their four children, uh, of whom he was very proud. After his retirement from the university, he was still active in the scientific community. 
He did have more time to be able to spend with his seven grandchildren as well. Watching them grow up be, uh, be, brought him so much happiness. And in his last years, he was grateful to see them finding their own success. In his passing, uh, Charles is survived by Mira, his wife of 62 years, their four children, Effie Kogan, Ram Kogan, uh, Gaia Masri, uh, Sherry Emilio, Yale Masri, Jeff Rendon, and Dina Masri, Ken Grudgo, as well as their grandchildren, uh, Rafe and Emma Kogan, Alexis Masri, Sam and Ava Grudko, and Maya and Joseph Rendon. He is also survived by his own cherished siblings, David Masri and Simka Zilka, and his extended family still living in Israel. The funeral service will be held on Sunday, April 16, 2023 at 10 a.m. in the Eternal Light Chapel at Groman Eden Memorial Park and Mortuary, 11500 Sepulveda Boulevard, Mission Hills, 91345, followed by a procession to the gravesite. That was Sal G. Massery, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, April 15, 2023. All right, let's go on to some Israel stories. This first one is from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 9, 2023. Israeli military reports a rare attack from Syria, planes retaliation. A plans retaliation from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. The Israeli military said Saturday that six rockets were launched from Syria toward Israeli territory in two separate barrages, a rare attack from the country's northeastern neighbor that comes after days of escalating violence on multiple fronts. Israel's army said it was retaliating with artillery strikes on the area in Syria from where the rockets were, uh, first were fired at Israel. In the second barrage, two of, the, two of three rockets crossed the border into Israel, with only one being intercepted and the second landing in an open area, the military said. In the first attack, one rocket landed in a field in the Israeli annexed Golan Heights. Fragments of another destroyed, uh, destroyed missile fell into Jordanian territory near the Syrian border, Jordan's military reported. There were no reports of casualties. Meanwhile, a Damascus-based Palestinian group loyal to the Syrian regime claimed responsibility for launching missiles at Israel on Saturday, reported Beirut-based Al-Mayadeen TV. The report quoted Al-Quid's brigade, a, a militia different from the larger Palestinian Islamic Jihad's army armed wing with a similar name as saying it fired the rockets to retaliate for a police raid on Al-Aqiza Mosque. In Syria, an advisor to President Bashar Assad described the rocket strikes as part of the previous present and continuing response to the brutal enemy. Also Saturday, Israeli security forces shot and killed a 20-year-old Palestinian in the northern occupied West Bank, Palestinian health officials said. The Israeli military said it opened fire at Palestinians hurling stones and explosive devices at troops. The Palestinian health ministry identified the Palestinian killed in the West Bank town of Azun as Aid Salim. His death came at a time of unusually heightened violence in the West Bank. Israeli fire has killed more than 90 Palestinians this year, at least half affiliated with militant groups, according to a tally by the Associated Press. Palestinian attacks on Israelis have killed 19 people in that time, including on Friday two British Israelis shot to death near a settlement in the Jordan Valley 
and an Italian tourist killed by a suspected car ramming in Tel Aviv. All but one were civilians. The unusual rocket fire from Syria comes against the backdrop of soaring Israeli-Palestinian tensions touched off by an Israeli police raid on Jerusalem's most sensitive site, the sacred compound home to the Al-Aqiza Mosque. That outraged Palestinians marking the Holy Fasting Month of Ramadan and prompted militants in Lebanon, as well as, as Palestinian militants in the Gaza Strip, to fire a heavy barrage of rockets into Israel. In retaliation, Israeli warplanes struck sites allegedly linked to the Palestinian militant group Hamas in Gaza and southern Lebanon. On April 1st, a few hundred Palestinian worshippers barricaded themselves in the, in the mosque, which sits on a hilltop in the heart of Jerusalem's old city sacred to Muslims and Jews. Israeli police efforts to evict the worshippers locked in the mosque overnight with firecrackers and stones spiraled into unrest in the holy site last week. The latest escalations prompted Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant to extend a closure, barri- a closure barring entrance to Israel for Palestinians from the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip for the duration of the Jewish holiday of Passover, while police beefed up forces in Jerusalem on the eve of sensitive religious celebrations. The move comes at a time of heightened religious fervor, with Ramadan coinciding with Passover and Easter celebrations. Jerusalem's old city, home to key Jewish, Muslim, and Christian holy sites, has been teeming with visitors and religious pilgrims from around the world. More than 2,000 police officers were expected to be deployed in Jerusalem on Sunday, when tens of thousands of Jews are expected to gather at the Western Wall for the special Passover priestly blessing. The Western Wall is the holiest site where Jews can pray and sits uh, next to the Al-Aqiza Mosque compound where large crowds gather each day for prayers during Ramadan. There was Israeli military reports a rare attack from Syria plans retaliation from the Associated Press out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 9, 2023. Alright, here is a follow-up story. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 10, 2023, Israeli forces strike targets in Syria after rocket fire. Right-wing politicians announce plans for a march through the northern West Bank by Elon Ben Zion. Jerusalem. Israeli warplanes and artillery struck targets in Syria following rare rocket fire from the northeastern neighbor as Jewish-Muslim tensions reached a peak Sunday at a volatile Jerusalem shrine with simultaneous religious rituals. Thousands of Jewish worshippers gathered at the city's western wall, the holiest place where Jews can pray for a uh, a mass priestly benediction prayer service for the Passover holiday. At the Alquiza Mosque, compound in a wild esplanade above the Western Wall, hundreds of Palestinians performed prayers as part of observances during the Muslim Holy Month of Ramadan. Hundreds of Jews also visited the Alquiza compound under heavy police guard Sunday to whistles and religious chants from Palestinians protesting their uh, presence. Such tours by religious and nationalist Jews have increased in size and frequency over the years and are viewed with suspicion by many Palestinians who fear that Israel plans one day to take over the site or partition it. 
The Israeli officials say they have no intention of changing long-standing arrangements that allow Jews to visit but not pray in the Muslim-administered site. However, the country is now led by the most right-wing government in history with ultra-nationalists in senior positions. Senior right-wing politicians, along with the West Bank settler leaders, announced plans for a march through the Northwest Bank on Monday, setting the stage for further possible clashes. Tensions have soared in the last week at the shrine after an Israeli police raid on the mosque. On several occasions, Palestinians have barricaded themselves in Al-Aqiza Mosque with stones and firecrackers demanding the right to pray there overnight, something Israel has in the past allowed only during the last 10 days of Ramadan. Police removed them by force, detaining hundreds and leaving dozens injured. The violence at the shrine triggered rocket fire by Palestinian militants from the Gaza Strip and southern Lebanon starting Wednesday and Israeli airstrikes targeted, targeted both areas. In Lebanon, Hezbollah's media office announced that the militant group's chief Hassan Nasrallah received a delegation headed by Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh on Sunday. The two discussed the most important developments in occupied Palestine the course of events at Al-Qaeda Mosque and the escalating resistance in the West Bank and Gaza, in addition to general political developments in the region, the readiness of the resistance access, and the cooperation of its parties, the statement said. Hanei, who arrived in Lebanon last week shortly before rockets were launched at Israel from South Lebanon, had been scheduled to make a public appearance in Beirut on Friday but it was canceled for security reasons following the exchange of strikes between Lebanon and Israel. No group has officially claimed responsibility for the rocket attacks, but Israel has accused Hamas of being behind them. Late Saturday and early Sunday, militants in Syria fired rockets and two salvos toward Israel and the Israeli annexed Golan Heights. A Damascus-based Palestinian group loyal to the Syrian government claimed responsibility for the first round of rockets, saying it was retaliating for the Al-Aqiza raids. In the first salvo, one rocket landed in a field in the Golan Heights. Fragments of another destroyed missile missile, uh, fell into Jordanian territory near the Syrian border, Jordan's military reported. In the second round, Two of the rockets crossed the border into Israel, with one being intercepted and the second landing in an open area, the Israeli military said. Israel responded with artillery fire into the area in Syria from where the rockets were fired. Later, the military and, and Israeli fighter jets attacked uh, Syrian army sites, including a compound of Syria's 4th Division and radar and artillery posts. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan discussed the violence in a telephone call with Israeli counterpart Isaac Herzog late Saturday, telling Herzog the Muslims could not remain silent about the provocations and threats against the Al-Aqiza Mosque, and said the hostilities that have spread to uh, Gaza and Lebanon should not be allowed to escalate further. In addition to the cross-border fighting, three people were killed in Palestinian attacks in Israel and the occupied West Bank. Two British-Israeli sisters, Maya and Rina Dee, were shot to death Friday near a, a Jewish settlement in the West Bank. An Italian tourist, Alessandro Parina, 35, a lawyer from Rome, had just arrived in the city a few hours earlier with some friends for a brief Easter holiday. He was killed Friday in a suspected car ramming on Tel Aviv's beachside promenade. 
More than 90 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli fire so far this year, at least half of them affiliated with militant groups. According to a tally by the Associated Press, Palestinian attacks on the Israelis have killed 19 people in that time. All but one were civilians. That was Israeli forces strike targets in Syria after rocket fire by Elon Ben Zion from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 10, 2023. Ben Zion writes for the Associated Press. All right, one last Israel story here. This is from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 11, 2023. Israelis march in West Bank. Premier reverses defense on chief. Netanyahu says he will not fire minister who criticized plans to overhaul the judiciary by Elon Ben Zion. Jerusalem. Thousands of Israelis, led by at least seven cabinet ministers, marched Monday to an evacuated West Bank settlement in a defiant signal that Israel's most right-wing government in history is determined to accelerate settlement building on occupied lands despite international uh, opposition. The mass rally also threatened to further raise tensions that have been heightened by days of unrest across the region over a contested Jerusalem holy site. In new violence, Israeli troops killed a 15-year-old Palestinian boy during an uh, an arrest raid in the occupied West Bank, and a 48-year-old Israeli woman died of wounds sustained in an attack last week that killed two of her daughters. Also Monday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reversed his decision to fire his defense minister over criticism of, of the government's contentious plan to overhaul the judiciary. In a live news conference, Netanyahu said that Yoav Galan is staying at his post. I decided to put the differences we had behind us, he said. Galan remains in his position and we will continue to work together for the security of the citizens of Israel. In a tweet showing himself sitting next to Netanyahu, Galant wrote, We continue together with full strength for Israel's security. Netanyahu announced late last month that Galant was fired. The decision set off a wave of spontaneous mass protests and a general strike that threatened to paralyze the country, forcing the Israeli leader to suspend his divisive plan to overhaul the the judicial system. Netanyahu never sent Galant a formal termination letter. As of Monday, Gallant, whose criticism of Netanyahu's planned judicial changes led to his dismissal, was still on the job. Gallant's aides said it was business as usual at the defense ministry. Monday's march took place in the northern West Bank, a scene of repeated violence in recent months. Thousands of Israeli police and army forces were reportedly deployed to secure the march, which added to the already combustible atmosphere that has accompanied the overlap of major Jewish and Muslim holy days. Tensions between Israelis and Palestinians have reached a fever pitch in recent weeks surrounding the Jerusalem Shrine. The march to Evatar, an unauthorized settlement outpost in northern West Bank that was evacuated by the previous Israeli government in 2021, was led by hardline ultranationalist Jewish settlers. Daniela Weiss, a settlement uh, movement activist told Khan Public Radio that the minister's participation in the march could be a therapy for the government to free yourselves from the dictates of the U.S. and Europe uh, concerning the West Bank settlement. Netanyahu heads the most religious and ultra-nationalist government in Israel's history. Several members of his cabinet, including Finance Minister 
Bezalel Smotrich and National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Givur, both West Bank settlers, and at least 20 members of the Knesset took part in the march. Speaking at the march, Ben-Givur said, We are here to say that the Israeli nation is strong and that we are here and will remain here. Monday's march appeared to be uh, aimed in part at shoring, shoring up support for Israel's hardliners like Ben-Givur. Recent polls have shown a sharp drop in backing uh, for the new hardline government in the wake of months of violence, including growing dissatisfaction among people who voted for it. A poll on Channel 13 TV found that 60% of respondents said they do not trust the government to deal with the current wave of violence, compared with 27% who do. The poll questioned 699 people and had a margin of error of 3.7 percentage points. Visits to Evatar have been banned by the military since its evacuation, but that prohibition has been loosely enforced recently. Israeli's army spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, said the military approved Monday's march, saying it would be highly monitored and highly protected. Scores of families, uh, nearly all of them Orthodox Jews, many of them pushing baby strollers, took part in the march. At the outpost, inflatable slides were set up for children to play on. The march passed without major violence, though Israeli troops fired tear gas at Palestinians near the, at the nearby village of Beta, who hurled stones toward the soldiers to protest the march. The Palestinian Red Crescent Medical Service said two people, including a journalist, were shot by Israeli rubber bullets and 115 people suffered from tear gas inhalation. A video on social media showed a tear gas canister landing next to a Palestinian journalist as he delivered a TV report. Tensions between Israeli, Israel and Palestinians have soared after last week's police raid on Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque compound during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. The hilltop compound where the mosque sits is the emotional ground zero of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. For Jews, it is known as the Temple Mount, their faith's holiest site and the place where two temples stood for in antiquity. For Muslims, it is known as the noble sanctuary home of Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam. Dozens of Jewish visitors entered the site Monday, escorted by Israeli police for a second consecutive day. These tours by religious and nationalist Jews have increased in size and frequency in recent years, raising fears by Palestinians that Israel may partition the site. Israel insists it has no intention of changing a long-standing arrangement that permits Jewish visits but not worship at the Muslim-administered shrine. Last week, Palestinians barricaded themselves in Al-Aqsa with stones and firecrackers demanding the right to pray there overnight, something Israel in the past allowed only during the last 10 days of Ramadan. Police removed them by force, detaining hundreds and leaving dozens injured. The violence was followed by rocket fire from Palestinian militants from the Gaza Strip, southern Lebanon, and Syria starting Wednesday and Israeli airstrikes targeting those areas. Recent days have also seen Palestinian attacks that killed two British-Israeli sisters and an Italian tourist. On Monday, Israel's Hadassah Hospital announced the death of Lucy D, the mother of the two sisters. D, who was traveling with her daughters, had been hospitalized in critical condition since Friday's shooting in the West Bank. 
The Israeli army said its troops were operating in the Aqabat Jabbar refugee camp next to Jericho in the West Bank. The Palestinian Health Ministry said 15-year-old Mohammed Bauman was killed by an by army fire. There was Israeli march in West Bank premier reverses on defense chief by Elon Ben Zion. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 11, 2023, Ben Zion writes for the Associated Press. All right, we have this international story from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, April 14, 2023. Moscow hints at prisoner swap for American reporter. Months since winning arms, arms dealers' freedom, Russia says it would negotiate journalists' release only after trial. From the Associated Press. Moscow. Russia might be willing to discuss a potential prisoner swap with the U.S. involving jailed Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich after his trial on espionage charges, a top Russian diplomat said Thursday. Gershkovich, 31, his employer and the U.S. government deny that he was involved in spying and have demanded his release. Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rybkov told the estate's news agency TASS that talks about a possible exchange could take place through a dedicated channel that Russian and U.S. security agencies established for such purposes. We have a working channel that was used in the past to achieve concrete agreements, and these agreements were fulfilled, Ryabkov said, adding that there was no need for the involvement of a third country. However, he emphasized that Moscow would negotiate a possible prisoner exchange only after a trial. The issue of exchanging anyone could only be considered after a court delivers its verdict, he was quoted by Taz as saying. That practice is in keeping with previous cases in which Russian authorities have insisted on completing the judicial process before considering exchanges. It's not clear how long the investigation could last, but other espionage cases have lasted for a year or more. In December, American basketball star Brittany Griner was exchanged for uh, Russian arms dealer Victor Bout following her trial and conviction on drug possession charges. She had been sentenced to nine years in prison and ended up spending 10 months behind bars. Another American, Michigan corporate security executive Paul Whelan, has been imprisoned in Russia since December 2018 on espionage charges that his family and the U.S. government have called baseless. During the Griner case, the Kremlin repeatedly urged the United States to use the special channel to discuss it and work on a potential prisoner swap, saying such private communications were the only appropriate means for resolution, rather than public statements and speculation. Gershkovich could face up to 20 years in prison if convicted. Russian lawyers have said past investigations into espionage cases took a year to 18 months, during which time he could have little contact with the outside world. A Moscow court has received a defense appeal of his arrest and it's scheduled to be considered Tuesday. Speaking at a panel discussion on the case Wednesday at Columbia University in New York, the newspaper's chief news editor, Elena Cherney, said that the journal's lawyer, journal's lawyer has visited Gershkovich three times and that he appears to be in good spirits and health and that he has received updates on one of his favorite soccer teams, Arsenal. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken urged his Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov this month to immediately secure the release of both Gershkovich and Whelan. 
President Biden spoke to Grushkovich's parents Tuesday and again condemned his, condemned his detention. We're making it real clear that it is totally illegal what's happening and we will declare it so, he said. On Monday, the U.S. government declared Gershkovich as wrongfully detained a designation that means that a particular State Department office takes the lead on seeking his release. Russian Federal Security Service, or FSB, arrested Gershkovich in Yekaterinburg, Russia, Russia's fourth largest city, on March 29. He is the first U.S. correspondent since the Cold War to be contained in Russia for alleged spying. The FSB, a successor agency to the Soviet-area KGB, accused Gershkovich of trying to obtain classified information about a Russian arms factory. On Thursday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, Peskov again emphasized Moscow's claim that Gershkovich was caught red-handed. He denied reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin had personally sanctioned Gershkovich's arrest. It's not the president's prerogative. It's up to the special services who are doing their job, Peskovitz said in a call with reporters. The U.S. has pressed Russian authorities to grant U.S. consular access to Gershkovich. Russian Foreign Minister, Ministry spokesman Maria, spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said Wednesday that Moscow would provide it in due time in line with the consular practices and Russian legalization legislation. Gershkovich is held in Moscow's Lefortovo prison, which dates from the Tsarist era and has been a terrifying symbol of repression since Soviet times. Welland was also held in Lefortovo until he was sent to another prison to serve an 18, a 16-year sentence after his conviction in 2020. The Wall Street Journal launched a campaign to support Gershkovich, offering the public a way to sub- submit letters to him via its website. Members of the, of the newsroom posted photos of themselves wearing t-shirts that read, Hashtag I stand with Evan. We need to make sure that Evan and his wrongful detention and the effort to get him back remain in the public consciousness and doesn't fade with news cycle. The news cycle, Cherney said at Wednesday's event in Columbia. What we're doing is trying to ensure that we do reach Evan with these messages, he added. We do what we can to keep his spirit up as well. That was Moscow hints at prisoner swap for American reporter from the Associated Press out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, April 14, 2023. All right, now we have this one back in the USA from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 11, 2023. Kanye made him angry and he's doing something about it. Doug Emhoff has a platform, Fighting Anti-Semitism, by Courtney Sabramnian. Reporting from Washington, second gentleman Doug Emhoff was furious. Kanye West, now known as Ye, has spent weeks giving Americans a crash course in anti-Semitic lies. He posted on Instagram that the rapper Diddy was being controlled by Jews. He tweeted that he planned to go death come three on Jewish people. He told Piers Morgan he was absolutely not sorry. Then on October 22nd, members of an anti-Semitic group in Emhoff's hometown of L.A. extended their right arms in the Nazi salute and unfurled a banner over the 405 freeway that that read Kanye is right about the Jews. Emhoff, the first Jewish spouse of a president or vice president, knew he had to act. When it's happening in my city, in my neighborhood, on my freeway, it makes it really personal, he told the Times. 
In the two years since becoming the United States' first second gentleman, Amhoff 58 has become an emissary for his trailblazing wife, Vice President Kamala Harris, crisscrossing the country to push COVID-19 vaccines and traveling to Tokyo to represent the U.S. at the Paralympics. A former entertainment lawyer, he initially intended to focus his attention on gender equity and access to legal services. But as he settled into his new life in Washington, Amhoff found the accidental spotlight. No longer just a supporting character for his barrier-breaking wife, Amhoff emerged as an ambassador for his faith and heritage. He had highlighted his identity in obvious ways. He lit the first candle at the National Menorah li uh, Lighting Ceremony on marking the start of Hanukkah, visited uh, synagogues including his own childhood temple in New Jersey, and in March 2021 held the White House's first virtual open to the public Passover Seder where thousands of Jews were paying attention to how the White House celebrated. And he had displayed his Jewishness in more personal moments making matzo ball soup with children at a Washington-area school and visiting a Holocaust museum while his wife held diplomatic meetings in Paris. But West comments, and soon after former President Trump's decision to host the rapper at Mar-a-Lago, required a different sort of response. In the years since neo-Nazis marched in 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia, chanting, Jews will not replace us, anti-Semitic attacks had increased across the U.S., now one of the most famous musical artists on the planet was elevating the very worst anti-Semitic tropes and very uh, and a former president was giving him a platform to, to, to do more of it. Harris encouraged her husband to be more forceful. Amhoff, White House officials decided, would have to evolve from candlelighter and matzo maker to the administration's chief voice against anti-Semitism. Sitting across from AIDS in November in his office, Amhoff asked how he could be more effective. He had penned an op-ed for USA Today for Rosh Hashanah in September, vowing to combat hate towards Jews and was planning to convene government officials, rabbis, and Jewish leaders to discuss extremism in December. And he and, the, he and the aides agreed that op-eds and roundtables would not suffice. Amhoff began preparing for his biggest challenge yet, a trip to Poland and Germany with Deborah Lipstadt, a Holocaust scholar who serves as the special U.S. Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. On the schedule, marking International Holocaust Remembrance Day, visiting Auschwitz, and confronting the fate his ancestors had escaped. Entrusting Emhoff with the fraught mission to Eastern Europe, Harris and President Biden were pushing him into a new role. He would have to prove that he could use his new platform in a way that felt authentic, and hope, as he always does, that his actions would boost his wife's chances of becoming the next Democratic president. This issue found you, Harris told Emhoff before he set up on his trip, and now you need to be up to the task. The policy role was important, of course, said Hallie Sulfur, a former Harris aide who is now executive director of the Jewish Democratic Council of America. But it's the way that he got there that's perhaps the most interesting. Amoff came to Washington by way of Southern California. His father, a designer of women's shoes, moved his family, the family from suburban New Jersey to Agoura Hills, a bedroom community of Los Angeles in February 1981, halfway through Amoff's junior year of high school. A 17-year-old Amoff, his curly hair carefully coiffed, felt like he had been dropped into the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He loved it. 
The Imhoffs were not deeply religious, but Doug had a bar mitzvah. He frequently recalls the brown velour suit he wore, as well as the summer he spent playing tennis and soccer at Camp Seder League, a Jewish camp in Milford, Pennsylvania. He regales donor crowds with Passover tales of his grandmother's dry brisket and his unironic un- un- love of gefilte fish, and casually refers to Biden as a menschy dude. After earning his undergraduate degree from Cal State Northridge in 1987 and a law degree from USC in 1990, Amoff rose to prominence as an entertainment lawyer. First at his own firm and later at Big Law Giants Venable and DLA Piper, he handled high-profile clients including pharmaceutical company Merck and arms dealer DeLorean Capital. He enjoyed long lunches out of the office, playing golf, a sport he misses, at Hillcrest, a historically Jewish country club, and dinner at Westside Haunts, Toscana, and Craig's. Today, Emhoff identifies with Reform Judaism, a liberal denomination that is the largest in the U.S. He doesn't belong to a synagogue, but has maintained a foothold in the L.A. Jewish community since the 1990s, where he began volunteering for Bet Zedek, a pro bono legal services uh, organization founded on Jewish values. We didn't meet in Temple, said Mitch Kamin, an L.A.-based lawyer and friend who got to know Emma through Bet Zedek. He's a West L.A. Jewish lawyer who was involved with his community and, you know, goes to services but not like every Friday. It's part of his family and his culture and his upbringing. Emma was a single, divorced father of two when he met Harris in 2013. His children, Cole, 28, and Ella, 24, are named for the jazz icons, John Coltrane and Ella Fitzgerald. The couple married the next year at the Santa Barbara Courthouse in a family ceremony officiated by Harris's sister and closest political advisor, Maya. Their union symbolized the shifting demographics of the United States. Harris, a black and South Asian American, placed a flower garland around Emhoff's neck in a nod to her Indian heritage, while he, in Jewish tradition, stomped on a glass. The couple continued to live a normal-ish life. Emhoff told a a group of students last May while Harris served as California's Attorney General and later a U.S. Senator. Emhoff's Jewish identity was evolving too, becoming an important component of the couple's public life. In mid-November 2017, Harris invited her husband to join her on her first congressional delegation to Jerusalem. Between events in Beersheba and at a water desolation uh, plant, the freshman senator set aside time for Shabbat dinner, a visit to Yad Vashem, and fulfilling a Jewish rite of passage for her husband's first trip up to Israel. The sun was setting as Harris and Emhoff drove to Jerusalem's old city, where a steady stream of worshippers trickled onto a Kotel Plaza to pray at the Western Wall. As they approached the Kotel, Harris paused to place a kippah on Emhoff's head. He bent over to allow his five-foot-two wife to fasten it with a clip. The couple smiled as she positioned it in place. Emma flushed with pride and laughed. He cherished the unscripted moment in a trip that was otherwise planned to the minute. A quintessential Angelino who relished life adjacent to the spotlight, Emma had to get used to a new kind of scrutiny when Harris launched her fleeting presidential bid, she she wrote later. Although most political spouses lament the constraints of public life, many have years to adjust to it. For Emhoff, the change came almost overnight. 
In a matter of months, he went from a behind-the-scenes dealer-maker to a Democratic surrogate and Harris's most effective fundraiser. But Emhoff also realized that his identity and how he communicates it to the public could be a political asset. Despite years of efforts by Republicans, about 7 in 10 American Jews are Democrats, many of them liberal. Orthodox Jews, who overwhelmingly identify as Republican, are the exception. Emhoff is smart enough to know that everything he does has a political dimension to it, said Alan Solo, a former chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations who helped Emhoff raise money for Harris. But I think he's smart enough to know that it doesn't help her to be someone other than who he really is. In January 2021, Harris was inaugurated and the couple moved into the Naval Observatory, the vice president's traditional residence. That October, with Harris and his parents peering over his shoulder, Emhoff hammered a mezuzah, a decorative case containing a small parchment scroll inscribed with a prayer, into the right-hand side of the observatory's wooden doorpost. The private ceremony marked the first time the Jewish sign of sanctity was hung in the entryway of an executive home. Some observers hailed the election of Biden, who has said that seeing neo-Nazis march into Charlottesville spurned him to run as a rebuke of the bigotry and extremism that flourished under Trump. But hate crimes in the U.S. continued to rise after Biden and Harris took office. Anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. surged 36% in 2022, reaching the highest level recorded since 1979, according to the Anti-Defamation League. The number of incidents in Los Angeles, Riverside, San Bernardino, and Kern counties jumped 30% compared with the previous year. By the time Emhoff saw the first photos of the banner over the 405, American Jews were already enduring a spike in harassment and assaults. The second gentleman seized the opportunity to act because, as he said, it's important to live openly and proudly as Jews, said Emhoff's friend Ted Dutch, a former Democratic member of Congress from Florida. It's important to fr live freely without fear. Two weeks before Emhoff set to set up for Eastern Europe, Biden pulled him into the Oval Office. The president recalled talking about the horrors of the Holocaust with his father and how angry the elder Biden was that the Allies had not bombed the train tracks leading to the concentration camps. Biden told Emhoff he had visited the Dachau concentration camp in southern Germany with his children and grandchildren. Emhoff's trip, Biden said, was personal for him, and he wanted the second gentleman to use his voice on the world stage. The trip was crammed with historical, sometimes emotional, emotionally draining stops. Emhoff met with Ukrainian refugees. He toured Oskar Schindler's factory. He walked Berlin's cobblestone streets, which gleamed with Stolperstein or stumbling stones, four-inch concrete blocks with brass uh, plates inscribed with names of people murdered by the Nazis. In freezing rain, he visited Berlin's Holocaust memorials spread across a few blocks near the Tiergarten and the Brandenburg Gate, and placed, placed a rose or a wreath at each. As the spouse of the vice president, Amov often has the privilege of avoiding tough questions on polarizing issues. But as many Jewish American politicians discover, often to their discomfort, talking about anti-Semitism can lead to questions on more controversial topics. 
On Amov's first night in Krakow, Poland, a Palestinian gunman shot and killed seven people near a synagogue in Jerusalem, sending press aides scrambling to prepare their second gentleman, the second gentleman to carefully respond to questions about the attack. As expected, he denounced the violence. But as his public role grows, activists, political operatives, journalists, and the public will ask him to take positions on more issues. Amov's cheerleading for refugees fleeing war in Ukraine fits awkwardly with the Biden-Harris administration's efforts to limit access to asylum in the U.S. Some of the White House have pressed Emhoff to be more publicly unequivocal about his and the administration's support for Israel, as just as some outside the White House would like him to be more critical of Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Even the issue of anti-Semitism itself is adjacent to more fraught arguments. Most people hate Nazis. Not everyone endorses punching them. Keeping Emhoff in a public-facing public role demonstrates the administration's confidence that he can speak on many issues with authenticity, Soifer uh, argued. He would not have gone on this trip if, they were, if, it were, if it were not for her role now as vice president, she said. But at the same time, he is very authentically and naturally defining his own role and his own voice, and there is great significance for that in the Jew, for the Jewish community. The greatest test of Amphop's ability to serve as an authentic representative of American Jews came on his visit to Auschwitz-Birkenau, the death camp complex where the Nazis murdered around 1.1 million people, including 960,000 Jews. He had a good reason to visit. This is a Jew who would have been incinerated in the crematorium and is now the second gentleman of the United States said Rabbi Sharon Brow, who led the Seder dinner Harris and Emhoff hosted. The sight of him at Auschwitz, she argued, would send a very hopeful message from one of the darkest and most awful places in the world. But Auschwitz is difficult enough to process on your own. Emhoff, who arrived on the 78th anniversary of its liberation, had to move through with it, through it with cameras trained on his every expression. You're almost not human if you don't feel the emotion here, there, he said. It's a very vulnerable feeling to experience something that emotional, that emotional and personal with everyone watching. This issue is so raw and important to me as an American Jew. I've got to get this right, and I'm going to work, and I'm working really hard to do that. Snow flurries fell on his back overcoat as he approached the camp, inf camp's infamous entrance gate, which bears the phrase. Our beat mocked free, or work makes you free. He walked through the camp as the temperature plunged, stepping inside a crematorium where thousands of Jews perished and placing a flickering off oil lamp at the edge of a memorial. In a courtyard between two empty barracks, he wiped away tears as he placed a wreath of red, white, and blue flowers in front of a wall where thousands of prisoners were executed. Cameras flushed. MSNBC was filming. Emma thought of the thousands of Jews back home, including his own parents, who would watch the ceremony on television or the internet and experience this painful moment through him. He was going to do his best. Donning a kippah, he bowed his head and tugged at the wreath's ribbons which read, From the People of the United States. A few days later, Emma made the two-hour drive from Krakow to Gorlice, G-O-R-L-I-C-E, a small town nestled in a 
Carpathian Valley in southeastern Poland. Until the 1940s, more than half of Gorlice or Gorlice's population was Jewish. Gorlice is not especially significant for the Holocaust remembrance or frequent, uh, frequently mentioned by historians. But Emov's visit was intensely personal. His great-grandmother and great-grandfather lived there before they immigrated to the United States more than a century ago, fleeing persecution. Whatever of a genealogist, Emov had traced his roots to the very address in Gorlice where his great-grandparents had once resided. He stood in front of his ancestral home, trying to imagine the life of his great-grandparents had built there and where he would, have, where would be if they had stayed. Had they been afraid? Did they have any sense of what was coming? What finally made them want to leave? He waved to the people inside, smiling as he snapped a photo with his phone. They waved back. Later, he texted the image to his parents, Barbara and Michael, his sister Jamie, and his brother Andy. The elder Emhoffs had been following their son's trip closely from their home in Palm Desert, even reading the White House pool reports he forwarded to them, but were unaware that he would visit Gorlice. This is amazing, Emhoff's 85-year-old father a man of few words texted back. Staying in touch was important. Even though Secret Service agents trailed Emhoff everywhere, his dad still worried about him. Emhoff's last stop in Gorlice was on a muddy hill on the edge of town. He clenched his fists as he began to ascend a snow-caked path into the forest. He walked in silence through a Christian cemetery and past tall pine trees. He paused beneath a gate bearing the Star of David folded his gloved hands together and approached a gray concrete monument. No Jews live in Gorlice now. In 1942, the Nazis marched 700 Jews into this forest, shot them, and dumped their bodies in a pit. Their remains lie beneath the blocky memorial. Christians often leave flowers at graves, but Jews leave stones. Amoff reached into the pocket of his overcoat, pulled out a stone, and placed it at the foot of of the monument. He raised his gaze, looking beyond the trees that surrounded him and inhaled deeply. Then he turned around and walked back into the forest. That was Kanye made him angry and he's doing something about it. But Courtney Subramian, reporting from Washington out of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, April 11th, 2023. And now, uh, here's a couple of stories regarding our senior U.S. Senator here in California, Dianne Feinstein. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, April 13, 2023. Feinstein asks for a judicial panel fill-in. California Senator, absent with shingles, acknowledges delays on Biden's nominations by Alexandra E. Petri. Weeks after announcing she had been diagnosed with shingles, Senator Dianne Feinstein's extended absence from the Senate has left Democrats in a tight spot given the party's slim majority in the chamber, spurring some high-profile calls for her resignation. Without Feinstein, who was 89, is the oldest, uh, who's at 89 is the oldest uh, sitting senator, the confirmation of President Biden's judicial and administrative nominees has been complicated. Late Wednesday, Feinstein's office released a statement acknowledging the delays at the Judiciary Committee and announcing that she has asked Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer to allow another Democratic senator to temporarily serve until I'm able to resume my committee work. 
Feinstein, the statement said, intended to return to Washington in March after being diagnosed with shingles. But the California Democrat has been delayed due to continued complications related to my diagnosis. She did not offer more specifics about her health. I intend to return as soon as possible once my medical team advises that it's safe for me to travel. In the meantime, I remain committed to the job and will continue to work from home in San Francisco, the statement read. As for the calls for her to step aside mounted from some corners of the Democratic Party, Representative Ro Khanna, Democrat of Fremont, joined the fray Wednesday. It's time for at Senator Dianne Feinstein to resign, Khanna tweeted. We need to put the country ahead of personal loyalty. While she has had a lifetime of public service, it is obvious she can no longer fulfill her duties. Not speaking out undermines our credibility as elected representatives of the people. Kana is co-chair of the Senate campaign of Representative Barbara Lee, Democrat of Oakland, who is running to succeed Feinstein, and is a possible pick of Governor Gavin Newsom if he keeps his promise to appoint a black woman to the seat if Feinstein retires early. But he could face criticism because such an appointment could be viewed as giving Lee an edge in the Senate race. After being briefly hospitalized in San Francisco in February, Feinstein has said she hoped to be back in Washington by late March, but she remains at home in recovery. Feinstein is working while she recuperates, spokesperson Adam Russell told the San Francisco Chronicle, but she cannot vote without being on the Senate floor or in committee. In an email to the Times, Russell said there is no update yet on her return to the Capitol. Her absence has disrupted the work of the Judiciary Committee, which holds confirmation hearings for federal judges and advances its recommendations to the full Senate. Without Feinstein, the committee is split with 10 Democrats and 10 Republicans. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Richard J. Durbin told CNN that Feinstein's absence has stalled the panel's uh, push to confirm Biden's nominees. I can't consider the nominees in these circumstances because a tie vote is a losing vote in a committee, he said. The committee's last vote on a nominee was February 16. In the full Senate, Feinstein has been one of two Democrats out because of an illness, wiping out the party's 51-49 majority on the floor. Senator John Fetterman, Democrat of Pennsylvania, checked into Walter Reed National Military Center in February to receive treatment for clinical depression which his chief of staffs has said had grown more severe as he faced challenges recovering from a stroke in 2022. Veteran was discharged after six weeks of inpatient treatment and is expected to return to the Capitol next week. The absence of both has forced Vice President Kamala Harris to cast three tie-breaking votes in her role as President of the Senate so far this year. The full Senate last uh, confirmed a judicial nominee March 22nd, though no tiebreaker was needed on the 53-43 vote. Feinstein has not participated in 58 Senate votes since February 27, according to the Senate's roll call votes. Concerns over the missed votes and Feinstein's health have led to renewed calls for her resignation, which have dogged the aging senator in recent years. John Lovett, a former speechwriter for President Obama, Obama said Feinstein should resign, pointing in part to Durbin's comments on the difficulties the party faces with confirming judicial nominees. It is sad that Feinstein had shingles and obviously not her, not her fault, Lovett said, 
but because she is not in the Judiciary Committee, Durbin has said that it has made it basically impossible to move a lot of these lower court nominees to the Senate for a vote, which means that Dianne Feinstein, who should not be in the Senate, is now preventing us from being able to confirm judges. That was Feinstein Asks for Judicial Panel Fill-In by Alexandra D. Petri from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, April 13, 2023. Time staff writer Sarah D. Wire contributed to this report. All right, now here is an opinion article regarding Dianne Feinstein from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, April 15, 2023. Dianne Feinstein Breaks New Ground, But Not in a Good Way by Jackie Calms. The U.S. Senate is, was still an old men's club in the year of the woman in 1992, when the election of California's Dianne Feinstein and three other Democratic women increased the number of female senators by 200% to all of six. I covered Congress back then, and it was common in those days for there to be at least one aged male senator whose enfeeblement was widely whispered about. Yet their colleagues covered for them, making reporting on a senator's competency pretty difficult. Three decades and a storied career later, the nearly 90-year-old Feinstein is the Senate's oldest member, and people are no longer just whispering. Fellow Democrats are publicly calling for her resignation. That makes Feinstein something of a pathbreaker again, though this time not in a good way. There are several reasons, however, that Feinstein is facing the scrutiny even if past senators of a certain age and one current member, Iowa Republican Charles E. Grassley, just re-elected in November 89, haven't. Alas, her gender is a likely factor, but a relatively small one. Another reason is this. Feinstein represents nearly 40 million people, 13 times more than Grassley, in a blue state that's chock full of politically ambitious, capable Democrats who coveted her seat. Three are, re- are already in the 2024 election race to succeed her. Representatives Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, and Adam B. Schiff. It was a Lee ally with his own ambitions, Representative Ro Khanna, who drew headlines Wednesday for tweeting that Feinstein should resign. It is obvious she could no longer fulfill her duties. Even many of her fans had hoped Feinstein wouldn't run again in 2018. Since then, she hasn't put uh, questions about her capabilities to rest. Like others, I've supported Feinstein's resolve to serve out her six-year term through uh, next year. Now, however, she's been absent from Washington since February when she was diagnosed with shingles and she won't return Monday when the Senate reconvenes after a spring break. Which suggests fi- uh, the other big reason Feinstein is drawing unusual attention. She's missed badly. With Democrats holding just a 51-49 Senate majority in a divided Congress and with similarly narrow margins on committees, party members' full attendance is essential to move their agenda forward. The provocation for the latest public publicity was Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Richard J. Durbin's recent acknowledgments that Feinstein's absence has stalled Democrats' push to confirm President Biden's judicial nominees and provide more balance to a federal bench that was packed with Republican appointees during Trump, the Trump years. Without Feinstein, the committee is evenly split, 10, 10 Democrats and 10 Republicans. It last voted on nominees for federal judgeships two months ago. I can't understand nominees in these circumstances, Durbin said. I can't consider nominees in these circumstances, Durbin said, because a tie vote is a losing vote in committee. 
Feinstein's concession to her critics Wednesday, a statement conceding unspecified health complication and asking that the Senate name a temporary Democratic replacement for her on the Judiciary Panel is unlikely to assuage those who want her to resign. In California, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, who's vowed to name a black woman if Feinstein does vacate her seat, is probably just as happy to, to have the senator ha- serve out her term, rather than be forced to pick someone else who is when a, when a competitive Democratic primary contest is already underway. Yet he needs to be prepared, perhaps to choose a caretaker who'd warm the seat until the 2024 winner can take it. While Feinstein seems adamant she's staying on the job, that may not be possible. Back in 2020, Feinstein was pressured to forfeit her place on the, as the Judiciary Committee's senior Democrat to Durbin. Amid party-wide outrage that she'd literally embraced then-Judicial Chairman Lindsey Graham, the South Carolina Republican, after he ran through Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court weeks after, tre- after Justice Ruth, Gin- Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and just before an election that ultimately would return Senate Democrats to majority power. That episode was illustrative of Feinstein's decline in performance and stature. It's hard to know why some politician why some politicians hang on so long. Too often it, it's sad when they do. Feinstein's case is one of the saddest, given the cloud that is now obscuring uh, a proud legacy. The senator has so many laurels she could have rested upon. That was Diane Feinstein Breaks New Ground, but not in a good way, by Jackie Calms, C-A-L-M-E-S, from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, April 15, 2023. All right, now we have a new column in the Los Angeles Times Sunday for uh, Sunday, April 9th, 2023. And it's a column called For Real with Amy Kaufman. Who are the people shaping our culture? In her new column, Amy Coppin will examine the lives of icons, underdogs, and rising stars to find out for real. And this one is called, No, Emily Ratajkowski Won't Just Shut Up and Look uh, Look Pretty. Emily Ratajkowski knows that everyone is looking at her, or maybe she doesn't, because she's never not been looked at. On Instagram, walking down the street or, or here, backstage at a New York Fashion Week show, all those eyes desiring, judging, calculating. As a model who rose to fame in the Instagram age and wrote a best-selling book about what it was like, she has learned to deal with the collective gaze by turning inward. She stands at the back of a line of 34 other models in position to close the Simkai runway show in an oversized bedazzled blazer and combat boots. Photographers approach her and she poses dutifully. Every angle is is giving, sickening. She's fierce, one says. She doesn't respond. She just keeps offering different angles of her face to the camera. The other models, newer to the industry, gather in clusters, excitedly discussing the other brands they're they're walking for in the coming days. Ratajowski exchanges pleasantries, but doesn't join any of the conversations. An onlooker is is staring at her while trying to pretend she isn't. I didn't know she was going to be here, the, the uh, woman whispers to a friend. She's like one of the top five models. Ratajowski doesn't hear this. It's like there's an orb around her, a protective shield she has self-generated. 
At age 31, the sense of calm is new to her, something that has emerged in the wake of the disillusion of her marriage and becoming a single mother. I don't even feel my heart rate go up in the way that I used to, she says. The anxiety doesn't hit me so much because I'm very clear on how I see the world and, and what the truth is. The truth, as the world is learning, is dark. On March 29, sexual misconduct allegations against her estranged husband, Uncut Gems producer Sebastian Bear McClard, became public. In statements obtained by Variety that were made in connection with a legal dispute, Bear McClard was accused of sexual misconduct and grooming, some of which allegedly occurred while, she, while he was married to Ratajkowski. After she filed for divorce in September, gossip blogs rampantly speculated that she ended up, that she'd ended their relationship because Bear McClard cheated on her. But she never addressed that, the rumors with any of the hundreds of outlets that track her every move. Instead, she moved on into a new place in New York City's West Village that she shares with her best friend from high school and into a high-profile dating life. She reportedly went out a few times with Brad Pitt. By November, she and Pete Davidson, fresh off his split from Kim Kardashian, were going to Knicks games together. Shortly after New Year's, she started seeing comedian Eric Andre. That lasted a couple of months. Then, in late March, photos emerged of her and Harry Styles making out. She was on her tiptoes, arms wrapped around his neck as she pushed against her, uh, pushed her against a van in the middle of a street in Tokyo. None of which offers the slightest hint that she has been living through what she describes as one of the traumatic experiences of her entire life. Over two months of conversations, Ratajkowski stands dances around the edges of why her marriage collapsed. In 2018, she married Bear McClard after just two weeks of dating, throwing on a jumpsuit from Zara and heading over to New York City Hall. Three years later, they welcomed a son, Sylvester. Sly, as Ratajkowski calls him, is the reason she won't go into detail about the horrifying years she's had. She doesn't want to jeopardize getting custody of their two-year-old. I'm scared, she, she says. I'm learning that outspoken women often don't get their children. Biting her tongue doesn't uh, naturally c come naturally to Ratajkowski, especially now when she feels she's finally fi finding her voice. In 2021, her first book, My Body, and a collection of unexpectedly frank essays exploring beauty, feminism, and power became a New York Times bestseller. That led to High Low with Emma Rata, a podcast she launched in October where she employs the same candor to interview sex workers, investigate ethical non-monogamy, and ponder the etymology of the word toxic. At this point, uh, it's difficult to recall that Ratajkowski first became famous 10 years ago for dancing topless around Robin Thicke in the controversial Blue Blurred Lines video. Since then, she's become one of the most sought-after supermodels in the fashion, walking the runway alongside Gigi Hadid and Kendall Jenner and serving this season as the face of Versace's and Tory Burch's campaign. On Instagram, where she has 29.9 million followers, she still shares provocative images of her body. She's sexy, but she's cheeky about it. Me coming out of, the, of a sad girl day to check in on the stepfather applications in my DMs, she captured one TikTok video of herself shaking her behind in the middle of the street. After years of trying to explain how her last name is pronounced, the J is silent, so on TikTok, she once posted a helpful emoji guide, a rat 
cow, and a pair of skis. She's come to embrace the culture's nickname for her, Emrata. Maybe the playful shorthand has something to do with why so many young female fans have developed parasocial relationships with her. That or that she offers them the fantasy of the glamorous hot girl life, the world travel, the famous friends, the designer clothes, while also giving them glimpses of its more sobering realities. I feel like I'm coming into myself, she says. Being able to assert what I want, that feels like it just started. My life as a creator and not as a, as a muse. Who the hell would cheat on Emily Ratajkowski? That was the question that kept arising online in the wake of her separation. She wasn't surprised by the discourse, but it made her sad that, and that said that some people believe somehow beauty somehow protects women from pain. The world is pretty brutal to women, no matter what they look like, she says. It's February, and Ratajkowski has just finished recording an episode of her podcast with Queer Eye star Jonathan Van Ness. Uh, Sunny Music Entertainment, uh, which produces the program, has set up a studio space for her in the company's New York office overlooking Madison Square Park. Earlier that day, paparazzi caught her walking on the street with Andre. She's talked about this on her podcast before she knows whether she's even into someone. uh, Pictures of her on a first date go viral. And then TikTok does what TikTok does commenting on whether or not she's out of a dude's league or continuing to question the allure of Davidson. Even my friends were like, what was that like? She says, uh, referring to her outings with the Saturday Night Live veteran. I actually don't understand it. People are so perplexed by the idea that a man might just be respectful to women and treat them like people and thus be easy to go on, out on dates with. Getting around is new to Ratajkowski. In My Body, she wrote about how, after a night of taking vodka shots at age 15, she awoke to a boy raping her. She was so terrified that she became a serial monogamist, seeking safety in partners she hoped would protect her. Men usually don't respect other women's presence in women's lives, she said. She feels more equipped to protect herself now. She's okay with telling men no, voicing her dislikes, making them mad. But I think that a part of me is still scared of men, she admits. Ratajkowski often drops bombs like this in conversation, but they're delivered in the same cadence with which she shares where she's, where she's got the vintage belt she's wearing. She's eager to debate thorny issues, and she's not withholding, save for spilling on her Tokyo makeout session with Styles. But her mode of expression is mellow. She's not one to yell or laugh uproariously, which has led some people, especially men, to label her as unemotional. One date recently remarked on how she was stoic in the face of adversity, which took her by surprise. I think of myself as as extremely tender, she says. I'm like, have I been hardened? I think I'm just a little bit less scared now, basically, of the world. So maybe that comes off as unemotional. Less scared of the world, but also less willing to put herself into positions where she is vulnerable to power dynamics and the power that is held by boys clubs. That's a big part of why she's basically quit acting. Her last audition was for Triangle of Sadness. The part went to Charibi Dean Creek, who later died, but Ratajkowski had already started to sour on Hollywood. After her first role in a major film, playing Ben Affleck's mistress in Gone Girl, she and her team began working on finding parts to prove she was a serious actress with longevity. She had some success, playing opposite Zac Efron, We Are Your Friends, 
Amy Schumer, I Feel Pretty, and Mark Marin, Easy. But I didn't feel like, oh, I'm an artist performing and this is my outlet. I felt like a piece of meat who people were judging, saying, does she have anything else other than her breasts, Ratajkowski says. In early 2020, tired of making herself digestible to powerful men in Hollywood, she fired her acting manager, commercial rep, her acting agent, commercial rep, and manager. I didn't trust them, she says. I was like, I can handle receiving phone calls. I'm going to make these decisions. None of you would have my best interests at heart, and you all hate women. There's an essay in my body where Ratajkowski writes about going to a WME party. She wasn't having a good time. Guests kept approaching her, asking for photos, and she left like her husband was abandoning her. The couple was the couple was bickering when Bear McClard's agent, clearly drunk, told Ratajkowski she was so famous that she was like Pamela Anderson before the Hep C. She was livid at the agent and her husband for dragging her to an event filled with men like that. I thought about the way that Bear McLeod had gl uh, uh, gl glided through the room, a room full of men who only two years before had been kissing Harvey Weinstein's ring and encouraging their young women clients to take meetings with him in hotel rooms, she wrote. I hated that my husband was at all connected to those men. Connected, she would learn, by more than just association. The revelations of her husband's alleged treatment of other women only confirmed her worst suspicions, that the entertainment industry still roils with the same exploitive forces that allowed Weinstein to rape and brutalize for so long. And maybe that's why right now I'm not really interested in men's POVs, she says, because they were lies, and I don't mean infidelity. This is, this is a effed up world, like Hollywood is effed up, and it's dark. Obviously, it would be nice to be with somebody who, who's in the industry or understands it, but I don't think I can. That was what the, that essay was about. I had a hard time even being at a party like that, but then having a, a part of me that was so connected to it was even harder. Speaking about her experience with power dynamics in Hollywood has drawn admiration and derision. Every Gus and M. Rada's podcast is like, sex work is work. We love sluts, I hate sex, and I'm scared of men, went one tweet that Ratajkowski reposted to her feed in February. Which, no, because she, as she says, she is out here in the streets with men. Just ask Styles, or the makeup artist at the Simcal show in February who had to cover up some little giveaways on her neck, presumably from Andre, per the timing of the paparazzi photos before she hit the runway. Ratajkowski does enjoy the company of men, at least those of her choosing. She still derives a lot of confidence from men, which she isn't proud of. A day before the fashion show, she said she had to ask a guy she was dating, probably Andre, if, she, if he thought she was pretty. He talked about the women he dated in the past, commenting on how gorgeous they were, but he never said anything about the Ratajkowski looked. So I said, what do you think of me, she recalls, and he was like, are you serious? You're a famous model. I was like, wow, you don't get it. I need to know that you are specifically attracted to me. Beauty is totally subjective. I don't care how much it's validated by a standard. By March, however, she had ended things with Andre and said she wasn't dating much. In LA for the weekend, modeling in the Versace show, she had just returned to her hotel after fitting for the dress she'd, she'd wear to the Vanity Fair Oscars party the following night 
and she was tired. I'm really not just thinking about guys, she said. I'm working. I'm a single mom. I've been so busy that it's easy not to think about. Two weeks later, the photos of her and Styles hit. There are even more headlines than usual, partly because he is the most coveted young pop star on the planet, but also because Ratajkowski is friends with his ex-girlfriend, actor and director Olivia Wilde. Pictures of the two women dancing together at one of Styles' concerts in June started start resurfacing as do rumors on the gossip site Dumois that the trio had once had a threesome. There's a million insane inaccurate things about my relationships that are sad. That is said, Ratajkowski said in a, voice note, in a voice note she sends from Japan. It's early morning here, there, and she's jet-lagged, giving Sly a bath. He splashes water in the background, saying, Mama, and trying to get her attention. I'm definitely still not thinking about guys, she says, letting out a soft laugh. Although, yeah, you know, sometimes things just happen. Ratajkowski was nine when she first realized she was beautiful. She was in drama class and started crying. An older girl took note, announcing, Uh, she's even pretty when she cries. In My Body, Ratajkowski recounts how beauty was prized by her mother, so much so that as a girl, she'd lie in bed at night and pray to be beautiful. She clocked all the remarks her mom made about female celebrities and their looks. Marilyn Monroe was never really beautiful. I don't get Jennifer Lopez. I guess men like her. She was an only child growing up in the home of her father, built in Ensenadas. John David J.D. Ratajkowski was a high school art teacher with no background in architecture, but he was handy, the kind of guy who made his own canvases and got into bronze work. Her mother, Kathleen Bagley, was a college English professor who once traveled to then-communist Poland on a Fulbright fellowship to teach American literature. While abroad, she learned that her father was Jewish and had hidden his identity for decades due to fear of anti-Semitism. She would go on to convert to Judaism and write a book about her experiences in Poland before the fall of the Berlin Wall. When Ratajkowski was a child, her parents instilled her with the love of reading. My mom talked about Toni Morrison as if she was like God, she says. Ratajkowski got good grades, especially in English. At age seven, she said she tried to start a journal, but on reading an entry back to herself, she felt that the writing wasn't uh, good enough and abandoned it altogether. When she began to model at age 14, first in teen magazines like Girls' Life, her parents proudly shared images from her photo shoots on Facebook. A couple of years later, she signed with Ford Models and started to drive to L.A. for auditions, landing a two-episode role on Nickelodeon's iCarly but she didn't publicize the gig to her friends. I thought I was too cool, she says. I was like, I'm an artist. I smoke weed. These clothes are embarrassing. At Sandy and Sandy Guito Academy, which she says had kind of a euphoria high, high, high meet, had, had, euphoria high meets Lord of, the, of Dogtown vibe, she was popular but didn't have a niche. When she got into UCLA, she decided to major in art. She liked making mixed media, photo collages mixed with drawing. Her relatives disapproved. What is she going to do with that? She would stay only four quarters, dropping out when her modeling career took off. My parents were worried, but what were they going to say? Don't make this money? Don't travel, she says. She went to New York, but every agency passed on her because of her height, five feet seven inches. 
At the time, he'd only make one or two exceptions for a shorter model per show, said Katie Graham, who found, founded the fashion magazine Love, which put Ratajkowski in her first editorial spread in 2015. It was always a bit arch archaic. For a long time, for a very long time, it was the model fits the clothes rather than the clothes fits the model. Grand helped get the model cast in a Marc Jacobs show, and slowly, high-end designers began to consider working with Ratajkowski. Even as her prospects grew, she found herself depressed. At age 27, she felt as if she were already having an existential crisis. She'd started modeling because she wanted to make money. Now she'd made some. What are you worth, she asked herself. She started therapy, drilling into what really made her happy. It was reading, she realized. She could, be, could she be a writer? For so long, she'd been paralyzed by the fear that she'd never be as good as those she admired. So she started slowly, writing essays for herself. But she couldn't tell if they were decent. So in 2019, she, st she decided to reach out to writers and, lock and looked up to Stephanie uh, Dandler, Aria Levy, Chloe Caldwell, DMing them on Instagram and asking if they'd be open to reading her drafts. Dandler, who had written an essay in the Paris Review that caught Ratajkowski's attention, was unfamiliar with the model when the message arrived. I sent a screenshot to my sister and asked, why, uh, why does this person have 28 million followers, said Dandler, best known for her books Sweet Bitter and Stray. She sent me an essay, and I could see that she had a voice and that she knew how metaphor worked. I thought it was very ambitious and gave her a few notes on it. A few months later, Ratajkowski sent Danier uh, a complete write, rewrite. That was when I was like, oh, this woman is a writer. The self-esteem boost was enough to convince Ratajkowski that she was ready to start shopping for a literary agent. Schumer offered to connect her with David Kuhn, the rep who had secured a reported $9 million advance for the comedian's memoir. Like, da like Danier, Kuhn was unfamiliar with Ratajkowski, but she told Schumer he'd ta uh, talk with her as a favor. Before meeting Ratajkowski, uh, before meeting Ratajkowski offered to send him her material to make sure he was interested. I expected to get a few pages, and she sends like 90 pages, and I was blown away by the writing, says Kuhn. I'm used to celebrities coming to me and saying they want, to, they want a book deal without anything on paper, nor any idea what they want to say. But Emily is the real deal. She was writing about issues most women can relate to, but also writing about fame and celebrity and the power that comes from that with a unique insider perspective. After My Body was published, and Ratajkowski scored a seven-figure advance, Although not anywhere close to what Amy got, she decided she wanted to go further, uh, wanted to further the conversation about feminism and how women were treated in male-dominated spaces. She'd been approached years ago about doing a podcast, but she didn't yet have a take that she thought would be would differentiate her from every other bitch with a podcast. So in 2021, she tracked down the UTA agent she'd previously blown up. Oren Rosenbaum, who helped Alex Cooper sell her sell the widely successful Call Her Daddy to Spotify. She says he told her he'd work with her on one condition, that she put out two episodes per week. 
He was like, you have to build this out as a giant library and own the IP, she recalled. If you only want to make 30 episodes a year, I don't think we should do this. Ratajkowski agreed. On a Tuesday episode, she interviewed a, a guest she found intriguing, such as actor Julia, uh, Julia Fox, stylist La Roach, and designer Donatella Versace. For the Thursday installment, she take to the microphone solo, posing questions about OnlyFans, empowerment, and, agent, and aging to investigate uh, through her own research. In May, she began pitching the project as a female-led podcast for Millennials and Gen Z, Fresh Air Meets Call Her Daddy. I was like, okay, Emirata is this one-dimensional figure that people know from social media and bikinis, she said. And then I have a book of essays, or you see me on a runway, and then in sweet pa- uh, sweatpants with my dog and my baby. All these parts of me exist. I want a way to speak to the multifaceted parts of womanhood. As a host, Ratajkowski has a gentler presence than the brasser personalities Cooper, Joe Rogan, Dax Shepard, who rule the podcast charts. During interviews, she rarely talks about herself, and she doesn't like asking questions that makes guests uncomfortable. I'm a little too bit too respectful, and I'm working on that, she acknowledged. I feel like if someone's coming on my podcast, unless they're offering information up, I don't like to push. Julie Fox says before coming on that she didn't want to talk about dating Kanye West, so I didn't ask, which is probably wrong. Like, I should have gotten her to talk about it, about him. Her hope is to eventually create a full-blown media company with more audio projects, documentaries, and maybe even a book club. She admires what Reese Witherspoon has been able to create with her female-aimed multi-platform media company, Hello Sunshine, but hopes to appeal to a younger generation. So she calls the business bitch era media. The name is about not worrying about labels like that, she says, or my emotions being easily digestible or other people. There are plenty of people who still resist Ratajkowski as a three-dimensional figure who thinks she benefits from the same system she's criticizing. And she gets it. She still feels unsure of, her, of, the, way, of the right way to share her body with the world. But if she hasn't played the game, hadn't, as she said, posted near uh, photos and gotten a huge Instagram following, would she have even been able to gain a platform to talk about the things that matter to her? I hate the idea that because, like, Sydney Sweeney posts sex pictures and has a bikini line that she's somehow hurting women, said Ratajkowski, referring to the Euphoria star. Can we stop blaming Sydney Sweeney or the women who had an affair with Maroon 5 frontman Adam Levine who everyone was so mad at instead of him? When the power dynamic in the world is so skewed, why are we putting all this weight on women? These are ideas Ratajkowski hopes to keep probing in further, uh, in further writing, although she is not doing much of it at the moment. She feels like she needs to process the last year before writing about it. She doesn't. She doesn't like writing that feeling that she doesn't like feel. She doesn't like writing that feels like therapy, the kind that asks the reader how the writer should feel. And then there's Sly. He's currently living with her full time, although he sees Bear McClard a few times a week. In a way, she sort of felt like it was the two of them, her and Sly, since he was in her belly. Toward the end of her pregnancy, she was becoming more and more eager to go into labor. So one night, she sat on the couch and placed her hands on her stomach and talked to her unborn child.
I'm so scared. And I know you're, you're so scared. But we're going to do this together. And I promise to keep you safe. Let's do it. I want to meet you. A few hours later, she was in labor. The experience gave her faith in her intuition, in her ability to control things. The subsequent breakup of her marriage, while devastating, reinforced similar notions, validating things she'd long suspected but pushed down. There's a relief now, she says, returning to herself. It feels beautiful, like I've awoken, she says. It's kind of like this archetype of Pygmalion, the classic story of the mannequin or statue coming alive. There's something that's been created in a man's perfect image, and then it takes on its own life. That was, no, Emily Ratajkowski won't just shut up and look pretty. By Amy Kaufman from the For Real with Amy Kaufman section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, April 9, 2023. Okay, on to some other entertainment news. This one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 9, 2023. Singer's Debut Really Pops by Mark Weingarten. Jane Start is an unaccomplished mus- is, is an accomplished musician for whom commerce, or rather a severe lack of it, has gotten in the way of art. A decade after a big lightning strike, a dance hit called Can't You See I Want You, her career has gone quiet. At 33, Jane is an over-the-hill, one-hit wonder, broke and over it. At least until her long-suffering manager and friend Pippa lands her a lucrative gig playing a private for some bachelor party bros in Vegas, where she is paid to wear a garish wig and recreate a smoldering vi- a music video for her sole hit. Her heart isn't in it. But this sad gig is the accelerant for This Bird Has Flown, Susanna Hoff's clever and entertaining debut novel about the nagging ambivalence of love, misconnections, and the transcendent power of a great two-minute pop song. Hoff's is intimately familiar with this world. You might know her as the lead singer of a pop band called The Bangles, which sold millions of records in the 80s, appearing in constant MTV rotation with mega-hits like Walk Like an Egyptian, Eternal Flame, and Manic Monday at a time when the channel had a vice lock on young Americans. Like Hoffs herself, Jane Stark perhaps knows a little too much about the sausage, how the sausage gets made, and she keeps a wary distance from the business. Her love of music is pure, though, which is why we root for her. Despite the setbacks, she hasn't forsaken passion for cynicism. I'd never yearn for the, for the spotlight, only in music, Jane uses, to strive to give others what music has unwaveringly given to me. The novel tracks Jane's long swim back into herself and her art, which really kicks off when Pippa surprises her with a one-way ticket to the UK, a mental health mini-break that becomes an emotional and artistic crucible. But it's a long road there. At the start of the novel, Jane is coming off a toxic, codependent relationship with her cheating filmmaker boyfriend. She doom-scrolls social media, morose and unmotivated, looking for warning signs of an impending wedding between her ex and a 23-year-old lingerie model. Then, proving that good things do happen on commercial air flights, she meets an Oxford English professor named Tom Hardy en route to the UK, and her constricted world begins to open up. The clincher, Professor Hardy knows his music. When Tom, 
in the early stages of their budding romance sends a flirty text name name checking and obscure bob dylan song jane lights up a bold out-of-the-box choice how adorable i thought calling bob out on his nashville skyline voice which frankly divided people the slow burn of this relationship how the intense curiosity of their infatuation blooms into the wonder of affection is one of the pleasures of Hoff's novel. Jane and Tom tentatively circle each other. He quells her fear of flying. They bond over Keats's sonnets and Isaac Hayes' theme from the 1971 movie Shaft. Tom offers her a writing space in his rooms at Oxford, and Jane gets into the uh, gets into live the life of of an unexpatriate unexpe- in the land of Virginia Woolf, W.H. Auden, and Paul McCartney. But the one song Pippa needs to refire uh, Jane's uh, career may- remains elusive. And now Jonesy, the Mark Ronson meets uh, Dr. Luke Sven Gali, who wrote Jane's hit, reemerges with the promise of a comeback at a, at a big arena gig of the kind that the Bengals themselves might have played in 1986. As Jane herself, as Jane finds herself pulled in multiple directions at once, trying to assuage Pippa while negotiating a fast-track relationship with Tom and holding off Jonesy for as long as she possibly can, Hoffs spins the gears for her antic narrative with sharp, sardonic wit and an insider's feel for the mixed blessings of pop, fame, and a fickle public. But just as the wheels start to fall off and Jane sniffs out a brewing betrayal that threatens to detonate everything, Grace arrives in the form of a few well-chosen lyrics and a decision that will align all the moving parts of Jane's chaotic life in a satisfying way. Jane has to travel a great distance to find the one simple thing that will sustain her. But such is the power of music. It can give us the key to ourselves at those times when we need it the most. Hoffs understands this acutely, which is why this bird has flown rings so true. Read it with the radio on. That was Singer's Debut Really Pops by Mark Weingarten from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 9, 2023. Weingarten is a writer in Los Angeles. Now, this next thing is technically an advertisement from the LATimes.com slash Vegas Guide, Las Vegas Travel Guide for spring of 2023. It's an advertising supplement. This is called Sign, S-E-I-N, of the Times. Sign of the Times. With an anticipated return to Caesar's Palace, Jerry is ready to make merry. Author unknown. If you're pretending to be a legendary comedian, producer, author, talk show host and director Jerry Seinfeld, you might think to yourself, it's time to put my feet up and relax. Likely, for Vegas audiences, the real Jerry Seinfeld is doing anything but. Finding his way back to Vegas after four years of absence, Seinfeld, the master of mind behind the eponymous NBC sitcom that redefined comedy television, has set out to perform his classic stand-up for six exclusive dates in 2023 at Vegas's famed venue, the Coliseum, at Caesars Palace. And what a return to promises to be. This weekend, Seinfeld takes the stage for his first two shows on Friday, April 14 and Saturday, April 15. Then, after a whirlwind tour of the East Coast, Seinfeld returns to Sin City this summer for four more exclusive engagements on Friday, June 9 and Saturday, June 10 and Friday, July 28 and Saturday, July 29. 
The venue is a perfect match for the comedian. Both have shaped and redefined their genres during their existence. The Coliseum, Vegas's original and next-generation theater, opened in 2003 and has hosted the absolute biggest names in entertainment since its inception in its intimate 4,300-plus seat auditorium inspired by the architecture of ancient Rome. The venue was located on the grounds of Caesar's Palace, Vegas's first true luxury hotel which has grown and evolved with the city to continually offer the ultimate strip destination. Seinfeld has constant, consistently wowed audiences with an enormous creative output since finding fame on his sitcom. He's written two best-selling books, hosted shows, comedians in cars getting coffee, produced a Broadway hit with collaborator Colin Quinn, Colin Quinn the long story short, and even voiced an animated bee in a feature film, B-Movie. During all of this, Seinfeld has managed to hone his stand-up by touring nationally and internationally. That was Sign of the Times, author unknown from the advertising supplement Las Vegas Travel Guide for spring of 2023. Tickets for Jerry Seinfeld are available now at Ticketmaster.com slash SeinfeldVegas and start at $84. All shows begin at 8 p.m. All right, so let's go to JewishJournal.com and in the columnist section, this is called Lost Luggage, A Lesson on Worrying. There is no use in worrying because I don't have control over the outcome. By Kylie Ora Lobel, April 14, 2023. Recently, while I was traveling with my family, the airline lost my baggage. My husband Daniel and I waited at baggage claim for our luggage, but when the last piece dropped out onto the carousel, it wasn't ours. We went to the service desk, confident it was there, and it wasn't. It was lost in a foreign country. They told us the tag must have slipped off. They repeatedly reassured us that they would find our black bag. Our bag was maroon. I immediately began panicking. There were priceless items in that bag. There were things I needed right away. The airline didn't see, seem like they didn't have a clue what was going on. Were my things lost forever? I broke out in a sweat trying to remember everything I packed. I went through the scenarios in my head and tried to figure out how I'd replace my belongings. Was I going to have to fight with the airline for reimbursement? The more I thought about it, the more my heart raced. I was working myself up into a frenzy. And then I got a hold of myself. I remembered I believe in God. As a believer, I know that everything happens for a reason, if, even if I don't understand it. But being the logical person I am, I started coming up with possible reasons. Daniel and I had trouble carrying all of our bags and pushing our two young daughters in their strollers. Perhaps God wanted us to take the load off of us and personally deliver our luggage to our house. Or maybe in the, in the future, my luggage is going to get lost again. If it happens now, I will now not put priceless things in it uh, the next time around. I will also get baggage insurance to prevent any further loss. If anything, I thought God was testing me to see if my faith was strong enough to survive losing a bag. I was determined to pass the test. In the grand scheme of things, this wasn't a big deal. I was safe and healthy and so was my family. We'd had a nice vacation and aside from losing the bag, we were fine. I visualized being reunited with my bag the next day in Los Angeles. I thought about going through my things and putting them back in my drawers and storing my luggage in my garage. 
I pushed the negative thoughts out of my head and I stopped worrying. I knew that worrying wouldn't do me any good. For the next day, I spent hours on the phone with the airline to figure out where the bag was. I unpacked my other luggage and didn't think about my bag. I prayed to God multiple times that it would be returned to us. At the end of the day, I was told that my luggage was on the next flight to LA. Around midnight, Daniel went to LAX and got the bag. When I was reunited with my luggage after 48 hours apart, I literally hugged some of the more precious items. I thanked God over and over. I was so glad that I stopped myself from worrying those entire 48 hours. I freed up so much space in my head. I saved so much time. And most importantly, I strengthened my faith. God has taught me a powerful lesson. There is no use in worrying because I don't have control over the outcome. Only God does. And whatever the outcome is, it is for the best. I know that he's controlling the show and I'm only along for the ride. I once saw a picture uh, that said, if you go through school with anxiety, you're going to work with anxiety, date with anxiety, be married with anxiety, have kids with anxiety, etc. It never ends. Or you could stop being anxious, not worry, and put your faith in God and live. I choose to live. That was Lost Luggage, A Lesson on Worrying by Kylie Ora Lobel, April 14, 2023. And if you uh, want to share a story about faith with me, email me at kylieol at jewishjournal.com. Kylie Ora Lobel is the, the community editor of the Jewish Journal. Okay, here is something else. This is called A Moment in Time, Teaching Our Children to Ask Questions. From the youngest, we encourage questions more than answers, explorations more than conclusions, and journeys more than destinations by Rabbi Zach Shapiro, April 13, 2023. Dear all, in 1988, at, uh, at the, following, the following letter to the editor appeared in the New York Times penned by Donald Shelf. Isidore I. Rabbi, the Nobel laureate in physics, was once asked, why did you become a scientist rather than a doctor or a lawyer or a businessman like the other immigrant kids in your neighborhood? My mother made me a scientist without ever intending it. Every other Jewish mother in Brooklyn would ask her child after school, "New, did you learn anything today? But not my mother. She always asked me a different question. Izzy, she would say, did you ask a good question today? That difference, asking good questions, made me become a scientist. I shared this letter uh, as I reflect on this past week of Passover, which began with a Seder during which Maya and Eli asked the Haggadah's four questions. From the youngest age, we encouraged questions more than answers, explorations more than conclusions, and journeys more than destinations. Let's take a moment in time to listen, really listen to the questions, and let's accept the challenge of asking good questions whenever and wherever we possibly can. With love and shalom, Rabbi Zach Shapiro. Letters to the Times can be found in the Family Participation Haggadah, A Different Night by Noam Zion and David Dishon, published by the Shalom Hartman Institute, Jerusalem, Israel. That was A Moment in Time, Teaching Our Children to Ask Questions by Rabbi Zach Shapiro, April 13, 2023. And now here's something from the, from the Editor's Notes section. Firing PR ace Noah Tishby was a PR blunder. 
The merit of Tishby's approach is that her canter instantly boosted her credibility. And what is more important for a spokesperson than credibility? By David Suisa, April 9, 2023. It's hard to imagine a time when the state of Israel was more in need of a smart PR than right now. Since the most right-wing government in Israel's history was sworn in over a hundred days ago, it has become one PR disaster after another. Every day seems to bring another black eye on Israel's image, from extremist coalition partners making reckless statements they're forced to walk back to uh, legislative proposals that threaten uh, basic civil rights and allow convicted criminals to be cabinet ministers. Of all the blunders, though, none stand out as much as the overbearing unilateral attempt to overhaul Israel's judicial system. Whatever one thinks of the judicial reforms that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition has proposed, William A. Galston wrote in the Wall Street Journal, it's hard not to conclude that he is proceeding in a reckless and destructive manner. That This is the key point. It doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you're on. It's a fact that Bibi's coalition blundered with its blatant power grab and full frontal assault on the judiciary. It's not an opinion. It's a fact, as Galstone writes, that Bibi has divided his country and lost the confidence of Israel's economic leaders, and that members of his own Likud party are signaling that he is going too far, too fast. It's a fact that even the architect of the overhaul himself, Justice Minister Yariv Levin, has admitted in an interview with Channel 14 that his plan went too far and that could ultimately cause a constitutional crisis and cannot be allowed in a dem democratic state. Which brings us to Israel's latest blunder, firing Noah Tishbe, its special envoy for combating anti-Semitism and delegitimization of Israel. Why was she fired? Because she expressed genuine concerns about the judicial overhaul. Evidently, the Israeli government couldn't stomach that Tishbe aired honest feelings shared by the majority of Israelis. What's happening in Israel right now, what we're seeing is literally democracy on full display. It's actually quite extraordinary, she said on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Tishby's framed, Tishby framed the, the civic strife in Israel in democratic terms. As it happens in the U.S., when new governments come in, they jump in to make sweeping changes quite quickly. And that's what this government decides to do, decided to do, she continued. They suggested a judiciary overhaul, which is going too far, and the Israeli people are basically rebelling against it. The merit of that approach is that her candor instantly boosted her credibility, and what is more important for a spokesperson than credibility. In announcing her dismissal, Tishby acknowledged that it's not possible for me to know if their decision was driven by my publicly stated concerns about the government's judicial reform policy, but, she added, given the reality that anti-Semitism continues its dangerous rise globally and the threat to Israel's existence through delegitimization policies has not slowed, it is difficult to come to any other reasonable conclusion. In other words, at a time when her position is more needed than ever, it makes no sense to squelch it. The only possible explanation is that she upset her bosses by being honest about the, judi the judicial reforms. Instead of seeing her honesty as being Israel in Israel's interest, the government took a short-sighted and insecure approach and decided Tishbe was not loyal enough. Maybe they overlooked the tremendous job Tishbe has done representing Israel's viewpoint, especially with the new generation on social media. Her various and topical Instagram videos, which have garnered millions of views, have been sharp, succinct, and credible. Her book, 
Israel, a simple guide to the most misunderstood country on earth, has given her the knowledge base to offer viewpoints that have the ring, ring of truth. It is that ring of truth that has been Tishbe's number one weapon at a time when terrorism is on the rise and Israel's legitimacy is cons consistently under assault. From haters on social media to BDS on college campuses to a UN that condemns Israel more than any other country. In her post-envoy and phase, Tishbe will continue to fight for her beloved Israel as an activist, but something will be missing. When an official envoy is honest enough to critique her country when it merits it, it uh, that elevates the country. It says, we're a free society. Yes, we're even allowed, we even allow our envoy in the diaspora to share her honest feelings. That's what freedom means. Just when it was about to claim a PR triumph for freedom and democracy, the most right-wing government in Israel's history snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So keep it right here with everything happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.